seeing the largest increase in people sleeping outside in Hamilton County in almost a decade, and the overall number of people experiencing homelessness is also up slightly. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. That increase follows five years of declines and raises questions about whether this is an aberration or the beginning of a trend going the wrong direction. Today, we're going to talk about what's behind these numbers and the impact of this increase on the people who can't find shelters in the communities where they live. Joining me in this recorded interview are Strategies to End Homelessness President and CEO Kevin Finn. Welcome back, Kevin. Cincinnati City Council Member Mika Owens. Thanks for being here, Council Member Owens. Thanks, Lucy. It's always a pleasure. Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition Executive Director Josh Spring. Welcome back, Josh. Thank you. And Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tracy Scale. Thanks for being here, Dr. Scale. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Kevin, walk us through these numbers. Total homelessness in Hamilton County increased slightly between 2022 and 2023, but there was a significant increase in the number of people living outside. Yes. Um, you know, I think all the signs from the data that we have related to homelessness in 2023 were bad. Um, there's sort of no way to sugarcoat that. But I do think for some broader context, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, overall homelessness had been down um, locally from 2017 to 2022, while it had been up significantly nationally. Um, and specifically looking at people who are unsheltered, um, unsheltered homelessness had been up by 35 percent from 2017 to 2022. And locally, it had gone down, though we did see a significant increase in 2023. So to some extent, what we started seeing locally in 2023 is some of the trends that were already happening around the nation uh, starting to show themselves in Cincinnati, Hamilton County. And that significant increase you mentioned in terms of unsheltered homelessness, I believe it was a 46% increase be- from 2022 to 2023 in terms of the percentage of people or the people sleeping outside or unsheltered. Um, how how many more people does that re- equate to, Kevin? What are we What are we looking at in terms of people there? It was about 360 people. So our community is an exception in that, you know, nationally, about 40% of people who are experiencing homelessness are outside on the street. Uh, In 2022, locally, we were at 12%, so well below the national average. In 2023, it jumped up to 18% of our homeless population being unsheltered on the street. But that's still well below the 40% nationally, but obviously there's no way to sugarcoat that. I mean, an increase of that size in people who are unsheltered on the street is always negative because people who are outside on the street are three times as likely to die as a person who is also experiencing homelessness, but who is a resident of a shelter. And Kevin, you've mentioned national comparisons a couple of times, but nationwide, what was the picture in 2023? Did did cities across the country see um, unsheltered homelessness increase last year also? 
that data is not available yet. The the best comparables that are available are from 2022. Okay. And 2022, there was a national increase, wasn't there, in terms at least? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there had been a 6% uh, increase in overall homelessness from 2017 to 2022. What we saw most recently was a just under a 2% increase in Hamilton County, um, but, you know, that was a number that had the data had actually gone down in prior years. So, again, I think while homelessness had been increasing nationally, it had been declining locally. Unfortunately, that did not continue into 2023. Dr. Scale, what are Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services outreach workers hearing from people who are living outside? What are some of the stories of why people are becoming homeless and, and have no place to stay. So it, it's actually staggering. So I don't have the statistics like Kevin and Josh have, but I have, I'm direct service. So I actually see patients every day. Um, I'm the doctor for the Homeless Act team. And I work with most of the shelters, Tender Mercies and Shelter House and City Gospel, all of those. Um, so it's more anecdotal for us. So we're, I see a person, I saw them, I saw them last month and how are things going? I've been living under the bridge. What? You know, it's that kind of thing is happening more and more and more, and it's it's really frightening. So one of the things we're hearing, so my patients have mental illness. Um, we know in this, um, Josh and Kevin, I'm sure we'll st- share t- statistics. That the, one of the myths is that most people that are homeless are, have mental illness. That's not the case, especially now some of the increased numbers are lack of affordable housing or people not having enough income. But for, for my particular patients, the lack of affordable housing, I think, has been a big thing. We used to have many more people having Excel certificates, subsidized housing, and there were more apartments available for them. And there are fewer apartments available. The list is longer. Um, and Kevin mentioned the word unsheltered. That's a huge hugely important point because if you are couch surfing, so you're staying with your uncle or cousin or friend, that doesn't count officially as homeless. So you don't get, and Josh can help me with that, or Kevin, there's a certificate, right? There's a mm-hmm. name for that that you get, but you actually have to be in a shelter to get that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our people are missing out of that opportunity to get into a group home or quick access housing. Mm-hmm. And have your... Um... I would frame that Let me just frame that slightly differently. So the biggest funder of services for the homeless is the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And they do not consider someone to be homeless if they are doubled up. They only consider people homeless if they are literally on the street, a resident of a shelter or fleeing domestic violence. So the the reality around that that certificate that Dr. Scale mentioned is that you know, you are considered homeless and eligible for services if you're on the street in a shelter or fleeing domestic violence. If you're doubled up, you're just you're not eligible according to our federal government. Right. Thank you, Kevin, for that clarification. And that's we see that all the time. Our our, our patients try, they find it's even a friend is just somebody they found saw at the bus stop and they stayed with them that doesn't count as officially homeless. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Scale, are you seeing, you mentioned affordable housing being a huge factor. What other differences are are you or your outreach team seeing in terms of the the people who are experiencing homelessness more recently, last year versus maybe a few years ago? Are you seeing differences in the population? My population has a variety of mental illnesses, neurobiological illnesses. So my patients have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. There's lots of or d- serious depression, PTSD, comorbid substance use at times. So actually, that hasn't changed for us. I think, if anything, maybe 
other people that I know outside of a community mental health setting, there's um, not as severe mental illness, if you could put it in that perspective. So I, I think I'm seeing more of that for my for my colleagues outside community mental health, that people that would not in the past have been homeless are now homeless. Mm-hmm. And, and doesn't being homeless contribute to mental health issues? Oh, absolutely. So if you already have some kind of psychiatric illness, imagine having being homeless and not having that sense of security exacerbates everything that you already have. Kevin mentioned people outside are much more likely to die. Uh, our patients, our clients are much more vulnerable than the general population. There's that myth also that people with mental illness and homeless, you be afraid. It's it's actually not the case. It's more of my, I have so many patients that have been hit in the head, uh, robbed of the little bit of money that they have on the street, or, um, or just abused for the sake of fun, if you can imagine how horrible that is. So I have so many of my patients that are very vulnerable. But, And if you don't have a psychiatric illness and you happen to find yourself in this difficult situation, you can very easily develop depression, anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder. Josh, what does the coalition hear from people who are living on the streets about why they're there, what the factors are that are contributing to to their situation? Sure. What we what we constantly hear is that uh, people simply cannot find a place that they can afford to live. And as Dr. Scales pointed out, even folks that um, are really lucky enough to rise up on, say, a, a list uh, voucher list. Um, many times now, people who, after waiting two, three years to potentially get a voucher, cannot find a landlord that will take it, um, either because the rents are just uh, too high uh, or just the landlord um, discriminates against people in that way and won't take it. Uh, and so, you know, keep keep in mind that Everybody who is staying outdoors in a shelter doubled up, everybody is trying um, super hard to not be in that situation. And it seems almost impossible to people to get out of it. Councilmember Owens, I know that these are issues that that are um, close to your heart, that you've been working on these issues. When you hear this, what are the kinds of things that that you, that the city of Cincinnati has been doing to increase the available availability of affordable housing in the city or, you know, make it so that people can use those vouchers and get that housing they need? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is one of those sobering conversations that really um, level sets in terms of, you know, the things that we've pri- been prioritizing at the city um, are on the right track. Um, This is one of those things that we can't solve overnight, uh, but I am very confident in the things that we have put in place. So, for example, you know, when we're talking about affordable housing, there's certainly a spectrum to to the to the pieces that are important, one of which is absolutely supply. And so what the city has um, invested in with the affordable housing leverage fund um, has been a mechanism to help to support uh, projects um, that are that are considered affordable. Um, we've invested dollars from our, our carryover, um, from our, you know, uh, our, you know, when we stabilize, you know, all of the fund stabilization at the end of a budget process, um, in addition to all of the uh, leverage dollars that that CDF, Cincinnati Development Fund, has been able to contribute to that. 
you know, it, it's a spectrum where it's all and. Um, so that's one aspect. And, you know, we can talk a little more detail about that. But the, the other part, too, is how do we make sure that we are stabilizing people in the places that they are in right now? And so the conversation has also, uh, you know, has to include things like how do we reduce evictions in this city? And this is certainly where I have spent a lot of time with uh, what we are calling our tenant bill of rights and how we expand protections for renters in our city because, you know, 62% of us uh, rent in Cincinnati. And so I think um, this is one of those elements on the front end that that we can help to support, like, you know, access to counsel. And so when uh, people are going through eviction proceedings um, within the court system, they have access to one, rental assistance or a legal representative, um, which often will help the, the you know the outcome of that will will far better support a renter in that moment than not having a legal representative. I think those percentages, you know, ninety eight percent of housing providers are you know in eviction court with a with a lawyer, whereas you know tenants are not. And so these are you know again, it's an all and um, kind of moment. And so these are certainly pieces that are important. While we're also trying to just improve our own systems of efficiency within Cincinnati so that when developers do come in and, and are doing projects, like what is the red tape that we can eliminate to kind of fast track things as well. And so we've seen that with some of our NOFA dollars allowing, you know, DCD to just kind of give the green light while making sure LIHTC is, is a part of that as well and, and not necessarily having to have, you know, council approval. Um, so these are just these are just some of the things, but it's certainly a comprehensive uh, set of policies uh, that we certainly need to um, put in place. We're talking in this recorded interview about the increase in homelessness in Hamilton County and some of the work that's being done to address that. Uh, Josh, you mentioned that there are some landlords, some property owners that that don't won't accept vouchers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard from those landlords that there can be a lot of red tape and a lot of um, hassles involved in in being involved in that. How, it, do you think that's a problem on, in terms of some of the sort of bureaucracy that property owners have to work through to to be part of that program? Um, I think there probably is too much bureaucracy that property owners have to um, deal with. Um, and it it is a fine line sometimes between how do we ensure that a, a an apartment is of quality uh, and is healthy uh, and when does it become red tape. Um, that said, uh, we actually, in the city of Cincinnati, uh, we have uh, a law that says you cannot deny somebody housing because they have a voucher. But it happens every day in our city, and the city does not enforce that law. It's been on the books for 20 or more years. Uh, And so things like that, there are uh, large and small actions that the city can take, um, including enforcing um, our own law. How tough is that enforcement, Councilmember Owens? That is, you know, it, it is something that is a is a issue because, you know, it's always about capacity as well. And so I think as we have been a council, you know, coming into the, this uh, the last term and this term, you know, making sure that housing is really a first, second and third priority, we're really starting to uncover um, these things. Again, you know, our Tenants Bill of Rights work will include 
further looking at one, the landscape of how easy is it to become a um, housing voucher provider? You know, what are the conversations that we need to have around that? Um, but yes, enforcement is one of those pieces. And so making sure our uh, our legal team has the resources that they need to be able to 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 go after this. And so um, these are certainly things that are um, that we are looking into um, and making sure that, uh, again, we have the, the ability to enforce the things that we know are going to help to keep people in their homes as well. Okay. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We're continuing our recorded conversation about the increase in homelessness in Hamilton County and what it means for people without shelter and the communities where they live. My guests are Strategies to End Homelessness President and CEO Kevin Finn, Cincinnati City Council Member Mika Owens, Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition Executive Director Josh Spring, and Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tracy Scale. Um, Kevin, before we took a break, we were talking about the um, high costs of housing, how difficult it is for people to find affordable housing, and how complicated uh, landlords can complain about the voucher system and how it can be a long wait to get a voucher, get an apartment. And, And Josh was saying some Landlords don't even accept vouchers, even though legally they they are required to. Even beyond the voucher system, what uh, is strategy stand homelessness finding in terms of programs that try to help people find affordable places to live to either avoid homelessness in the first place or, you know, get out of homelessness with a good, decent place to live? I think the primary issue, everything that has been said about the difficulty for with people finding housing if they have a housing choice voucher, that is all completely true. I think separately, though, uh, the major issue is the cost of housing. So, you know, my organization oversees, you know, funding that is not the housing choice voucher or Section 8 program where we try to help people get back into housing. Um, And these are programs that are really targeted at helping move people to self-sufficiency, only, you know, assisting them with a subsidy for a limited period of time until they're ready to take over paying the full rent themselves. Well, even in those programs, which actually had more funding, either stable funding or increased funding in 2023, there were actually fewer people that we were actually able to house in those programs And the reason was just because housing has become so much more expensive. So if the cost you are paying for one household goes up by 20% to help them get into housing, then there are just fewer dollars left to help as many households. So even with increased funding in these other programs, which are known as continuum of care programs, Uh, To me, one of the most troubling things we saw in our 2023 data is that we still actually housed fewer people. And the reason for that is just that housing has become more expensive. And then, Kevin, what kind of pressure does that put on the rest of the system? I mean, for people who are in shelter waiting to leave shelter to get housing, if you can't help as many people get get housing, what's the domino effect there? Well, you know, I would agree with something I think it was Josh said before about, you know, you have all these different people, people who are doubled up, people that are in shelter, people that are on the street. They're all trying to find housing at the same time. So there's a lot of competition for housing. But specifically related to the homeless services system, 
you know, it's uh, it creates bottlenecks in the system. So, for example, if a family has a subsidy of some sort available to them to help them move out of shelter, but can't find an apartment, then they end up staying in the shelter longer. And because they can't get out of the shelter, other families that need shelter can't get into the shelter. So, uh, and then, you know, we saw more families out on the street last year than we had in prior years. And that's how the, these bottlenecks sort of play out. If one family can't get out of a shelter, another family can't get in, and then they perhaps end up actually sleeping on the street when, you know, families sleeping on the street is not really something that we used to see locally. We do see that sometimes now. Kevin, you mentioned the federal government allocated a lot of money to help people stay in their homes in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. They had allocated a lot of money for prevention services. What impact did those funds have on homelessness locally? Did, did any of that contribute to the decline in the number of people experiencing homelessness that, that Hamilton County saw for a few years there? Well, you know, normally, in normal times, the federal government does not make any funding available for prevention. So we have to wait for people to already be literally homeless before we can offer them assistance, which is unfortunate. You know, but then this is not rocket science. You know, during the pandemic, the federal government made significant funding available to help people not get evicted and stay in housing they already have. And boom, homelessness went down for three years in a row. Um, Then all of a sudden in 2023, those dollars started to expire and go away. And boom, homelessness went up. So th- this is not really rocket science. It typically costs less to prevent somebody from becoming homeless than it does to help them after they are homeless. So if more resources are put toward things like prevention, fewer people become homeless. And Josh, then how do you see that play out in all the different um organizations that are part of the coalition really serving people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty. So the just at, in December we honored 169 people in our community who died in 2023 at the average age of 55 wow. uh, because of homelessness. Homelessness nationally and locally takes about 25 years off of a person's lifespan. Uh, and what I hear when Kevin makes the accurate and and honestly common sense statement that, okay, when funds were put in to secure housing or keep people housed, less people lost their housing. Logical. And so what that communicates to me is what we've known forever, is that we have to invest in the development and preservation of truly affordable housing. And It's great when the federal government puts more dollars in and we have to fight for that to happen. Um, But we as a city here have to take more responsibility for our own city, for our own people. Uh, We live in a city that uh, last year, two months, we saw year over year the largest increases in rent of any city in the entire country. Uh, We have more than a third of our city's households cannot afford their rent or mortgage today. Um, And it's gotten to a point where, as Kevin pointed out, that we're seeing more 
uh, families with children outdoors. Uh, and the, the outreach workers that uh, Dr. Scales connects with through Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services, the PATH team, the PATH team was created uh, 20 or so years ago, and that was a bright idea to reach the increasing number of people outside. And now we're to the point where we're talking about, do we need the same thing specifically for families outdoors? Uh, we have gone down a slippery slope, but it's because we've allowed ourselves to keep going down it. Dr. Scale, what are the additional problems that this presents to, to your patients? The fact that they've they've got these mental health conditions they're dealing with anyway, when they're, when they're sleeping outside, when they're sleeping under a bridge, how does that exacerbate what they're going through? I mean, how does that lack of affordable housing really add to what they're dealing with? Well, it's, it's, so they feel a sense of hopelessness, helplessness, um, more thoughts of suicide. Um, Josh's um, information about honoring the 169 people that died from homelessness. That's really, that's so sobering, Josh, and, and thank you for honoring them. And you're right, people with major mental illness in, in particular die 20 years below the national average. And if you add homelessness to it, it just makes it even worse. So my group, as Kevin's pointing out, there's, you know, homelessness is very broad. My group is mostly focused on our path team of people with mental illness. So I do think there needs to be separate teams for families. You can imagine there's even fewer places where a family can go. We can put, um, there's the men's shelter, there's the women's shelter, there's, you know, these things in other places where maybe um, someone fleeing domestic violence situation, a mother and her child. But we don't see a lot for families. Um, and even for my patients that when they can get into housing, they they go in by themselves. They can't go in with a partner or anybody else. It's single, um, single occupancy. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think for, again, for my subset of this very broad issue of homelessness, my group of people, when they do get, say they go into a shelter so they can get, they're officially homeless. The next thing is really a group home. We can often get them into a group home, but they really don't need a group home. I see this so much. I, they really need an apartment. That seems like a waste also of resources, but you have to go through the motions. You must go to the group home to then get somewhere else, but you might be stuck in the group home setting for a long period of time. Um, and the increase in rents, I hear that every day from my patients. They'll say, the rent just keeps going up and I don't know. So they're living in this limbo all the time. They don't know if the landlord is going to increase in six months next year and they're living in that constant state of fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Kevin, I want to uh, jump in. We've talked about families experiencing homelessness in a couple of different ways. Talk to us about the shelters that are available for families who are homeless in, in Hamilton County and what um, how that capacity has changed, if it has, over the course of the pandemic. Because I know for those family shelters, once COVID-19 hit, it was those congregate shelters really faced some challenges. Yeah, the issues facing families are significant. Um, you know, we going into the pandemic had four family shelters that were operating in Hamilton County. In the years of the pandemic, one of those four shelters closed and is not going to reopen. Uh, two others are still operating at a reduced capacity uh, compared to what their capacity was during um, or pre-pandemic. 
And then the fourth, which is Bethany House, thank God, actually uh, opened a new shelter and expanded their capacity somewhat during the pandemic. But still, the overall net effect is that we currently have less family shelter capacity than we had prior to the pandemic. Um, and that is just extremely unfortunate because it, families were having a difficult time getting into shelter even pre-pandemic. You know, in 2023, 13% of the families that reached out to the intake line for the family shelter system, only 13% of the families that called regarding shelter ended up being placed in a shelter. Um, so there clearly is a lot of need out there and families that perhaps are staying in bad situations and would actually prefer to come into a shelter than remain where they are, but there is not always capacity available to bring them in. So another thing about that is then families get broken up. So, you know, so this little kid goes to this aunt and somebody else goes somewhere else. So families start disintegrating that way as well. Kevin, why? So the the one closed, was that a funding issue? And then you said decreased capacity in the other two shelters. Is that also a funding piece? Um, they weren't so much funding as they were logistics of the pandemic. You know, one of most of the shelters switched to using motel rooms mm. during the pandemic so that the families could be sort of segregated from each other so that COVID would not spread. Um, it proved extremely difficult for them to then get back into their regular facilities in the case of the found house interfaith housing network uh, their shelter relies on churches to host families and that's sort of how their shelter model works well a lot of the churches and congregations have been slow to go back to uh, hosting for concerns that their volunteers and people like that might contract covid so that was a very different set of issues than you know, the YWCA, which is our domestic violence shelter, they have a new shelter that is under construction, but they, you know, due to rising costs of materials and all sorts of different things, that shelter is not ready to go yet. Um, and they had to close their shelter in a neighboring county. So their facility here in Hamilton County has been hosting both Hamilton County families and families from surrounding areas which reduces the capacity for Hamilton County families. So it's it's been sort of a mixed bag of um, things going wrong in different ways for different organizations that have led to the capacity being lower. Councilmember Owens, I, you know, we've talked a lot about affordable housing. You talked some about the work that the city and the city council's been doing to try to increase affordable housing and, and help developers make that happen. That certainly yeah. takes time to build new affordable yeah. housing. Um, what are there more immediate things? You mentioned the Tenants' Bill of Rights. Are, are there more immediate things that you've been yeah. working on to truly try to address this issue while that affordable housing comes online? Yeah, absolutely. And and we've unpacked a lot here. So one of the things that I, I want to um, come back to is, of course, you know, everything 
points to supply um, a majority of this. And so just kind of coming back to the success that we've seen with uh, CDF, uh, the majority of those dollars going to units, you know, projects that have been 60 per, targeting 60% or lower AMI. And so I think we, we you know, brought online, you know, over 800 um, income restricted um, units in the past, I, I believe, year. And so being on track to continue to to see those those units come online, which is like three times more affordable housing than the previous five years. Um, and so how do we do more of that? And so one of the things, um, again, you know, these are things that's some of which take more than just, you know, a, you know, it's not overnight, but one of the most important conversations that we're going to be able to have as a community is what our connected communities um, looks like as it relates to zoning reform. So how can, you know, gets to uh, land use and, and how can we um, create more density um, by looking at how we rezone our city potentially. And so as we know that a large percentage of it is only directed to single family homes. And so we need to be able to build everything from single family to multifamily, middle, it, it, the missing middle, all of that. So this is going to be an important um, step to that. The, the other piece that I also want to kind of bring up, which again, you know, the cost of preventing homelessness, the cost of preventing someone uh, not having a roof over their head is far less than, you know, folks going into the systems that we are all talking about um, that are already, you know, overloaded. And so when we think about, uh, from a budgetary standpoint, one of the most important roles that I play, actually, I think it's the at the top of the list, and how we allocate, uh, you know, taxpaying dollars, um, is, is how we look at efficiency and how we look at outcomes. And so uh, this impact award uh, that Kevin Finn and, and a group of, of fantastic organizations to actually be able to look upstream um, and Kevin can certainly provide all the, the details, but for us, it was one, readdressing what our human services priorities need to look like um, in terms of percentages that we allocate over $17 million in our human services fund. And so if we can put housing at the top of the list and then say, hey, let's let's create something that's never been done by giving a multi-cycle you know, award, two point something million dollars to actually help prevent of homelessness, what can that look like while fostering a an environment of collaboration? And hence, you have the first ever impact award where now we can look at, you know, Kevin and his group is looking at data analytics to actually do that. So these are some of the ways that I think can create immediate um, results while we're also looking upstream. Some of that upstream has to be about, you know, rising increase in, in rent. Also, the fact that People need to have jobs that that, that can um, help to pay, you know, for the the rent that the, the current cost of rent. And so, looking at what you know, workforce development strategies. So yes, that is upstream. But something else that my office is you know taking quite a, a intentional look at is what other cities are doing around like city no for dollars. Uh, in terms of projects and how we can actually apply affordability to that. For example, in Philadelphia, you know, there's zero for a housing provider who has multiple units across the city, um, being able to have access to, you know, 0% interest revolving loan, um, while also being able to say, hey, 
if there are people that are 60% or lower living in your units, you're also agreeing to um, not raising your rents, um, you know, more than 3%. I mean, just these pieces um, that will help one, someone to repair their home, you know, increase the value, help to maintain affordability, but also help to, um, you know, prevent, you know, prevent people from not being able to afford um, living there by these other mechanisms. And so I think this is one of those moments where we just have to look um, at what other cities are doing, while we are also looking at policies that we know we can we can uh, enact right now. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. This is Cincinnati Edition. This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. We're talking in this recorded conversation about the increase in the number of people in Hamilton County who are homeless and living outside and the factors contributing to that increase. My guests are Strategies to End Homelessness President and CEO Kevin Finn, Cincinnati City Council Member Mika Owens, Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition Executive Director Josh Spring, and Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tracy Scale. Before we took a break, uh, Council Member Owens was talking about some of the various policies that are really trying to address affordable housing, homelessness prevention, eviction prevention. Um, Josh, when you see all those things at play, what, what's your reaction to that? Sure. Um, so our organization, along with many others for, for years, have been, have been pushing that we need the city to invest in truly affordable housing. We need uh, protections for tenants. It's far too easy to evict people in our county and in our city. Um, and I want to address some of the policies that Councilperson uh, Owens has brought up. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's good that we talk about realities. What, what, are, what is the city working on that affects the daily life of an average person? Uh, and so we've heard mentioned the Tenant Bill of Rights. Um, our organization, several years ago, drafted the first draft of a Tenant Bill of Rights. And in the two years that this council has been in place, what has happened is this council has asked the administration to create a resource guide, a guide, a legal guide for tenants, one for landlords. They've done some training, but there is no tenant bill of rights. It's not been passed. It's no ordinance to do it. Uh, this council has incorporated an existing state law regarding illegal setouts into an ordinance, but nothing new. There's uh, some dollars that have been put into uh, the uh, a pilot to try what happens if we give people facing eviction an attorney. Uh, it's called right to counsel, but there is no right to counsel in our in our city. And even the leverage fund that has been mentioned, $34 million of the fund uh, of, of what the city has been put in, has put in is our federal dollars that have to be paid back. That this station published a story about last month saying are virtually unusable. Uh, and and then finally, I just want to say the the we'll be hearing more talk of this connected communities that the mayor and council are pushing. The idea, as Councilperson Owens said, that in, that the key is increasing the supply. But the part that's missing from that is the key is increasing the supply 
of housing that's affordable at the levels that we need it to be affordable. And that's 30% of the median income or lower, households with about 30000 a year or less. What the mayor and the council, some of the council members are pushing are decreasing barriers to development in general. No requirements specifically about affordable housing. And they rely on something that they call filtering. It came from a report by some academics that says if you allow developers to reduce regulations, if you allow developers to just build more housing, even if they build housing that is expensive and luxury, that housing will eventually deteriorate to the point that it will be less valuable, the people with wealth won't want it, and years later, 10, 15 years later, people with less money may be able to afford it. The mayor's plan relies on this filtering. It's very clear. They cite this throughout their plan. Uh, And so we just have to think about it. Is that how we want to be? And in fact, a little bit of research will show that President Donald Trump in 2019 released an executive order about homelessness and affordable housing, and he cited the exact same strategies. And so it's interesting that an all-democratic council and mayor are citing the same strategies as former President Trump. Councilman Rowans, do you want to respond to that? I will just say this. Um, you know, it is not called right to counsel. And so our access to counsel is a program that we expect, an initiative that we expect to be able to scale um, in the future. And so that is how the ordinance is written to to do just that. And so those, um, those components of, of what that looks like, um, those are things that are actively being worked on as well, including things like mediation, um, which we're hearing from, we know that that is a successful um, piece that we're also hearing from our housing providers to say, hey, if we can prevent even going in court because the majority of, you know, um, evictions are due to non-payment. And so if we can have the opportunity to even work that out before it even hits the docket, that's a good thing. So again, this is an all and, right? We, we can't exclude anything from the table. Um, you know, as it relates to our budget, absolutely, we are accountable to to many issues and services that people rely on in the city. And so being able to look at the the landscape of all of those pieces is important as we look at, um, you know, the the earnings tax base in the city, which always comes back to, we need folks here, moving here in Cincinnati, um, who who can add to the earnings tax base, which is why I think, you know, mixed income development projects are also quite important um, in in this landscape as well. Um, and again, as much as we can decrease barriers to, uh, you know, developers being able to do these sorts of projects as well, it's, it's pretty important. And, and so I think the track record um, that, that, that CDF thus far um, has been able to, to produce, um, I think that is, you know, we're on a good track there. Um, but I will say that every single day, you know, all of the things that we can do both now and upstream, uh, nothing is, is off the table um, for, this, for this council. Kevin, I want to come back to where we started. That's this 46% increase in people sleeping outside from 2022 to 2023. Um, I, I want your thoughts. Could this be the beginning of, a, of a, an even more worrisome trend? Because I've heard you say many times that homelessness is a lagging economic indicator. Do you think the economic problems that were wrought by COVID could finally be catching up with us locally in terms of homelessness? 
That is possible, though I think we're doing a lot to prevent that from happening. I mean, I, I would say, you know, I would agree with Josh that we need affordable housing, you know, at, for the lower end of the income scale. I also agree with council member, several of the things council member Owens has said, because, you know, what makes our community a little bit different is we have some homelessness prevention services, maybe not at the capacity that we should or would want to, but we do have some homelessness prevention programming in place. And historically, those programs have been funded by the city of Cincinnati. How did the city of Cincinnati fund them? They grew their tax base and put some of the funding from that increased tax base into homelessness prevention. So like these are very complicated issues because, you know, you um, I agree with what Josh said. I also agree with what Councilmember Owen says and things like, you know, some gentrification and growing of the tax base then allows entities like the city to put funding into prevention, which does not exist in many communities. So uh, there's just a lot of moving parts to tackle these. My hope is that because Cincinnati does prevention at a larger scale than most communities, that we will not continue to see the same things happening here that have been happening nationwide. That is my hope. Josh, I want to ask you about something else that's kind of looming. Um, in April, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear a case that could change how cities manage homelessness and could determine whether cities can fine or arrest people for sleeping outside if there's no shelter available. How closely are, are you watching that case and, and what kind of impact do you think could have locally? Sure. Uh, yes, uh, we are watching this um, Supreme Court case very, very closely. Um, I'm al we're also part of the National Coalition, and so, of course, we're watching it um, uh, nationwide. One, something important context, in 2018, um, the Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition, we worked with people living outdoors and filed a federal lawsuit against the city for criminalizing people uh, without homes. Uh, and uh, judicial uh, decisions have supported in recent history that for municipality to arrest or threaten arrest, threaten action against somebody for simply existing outdoors, that uh, something you can't help but do, that that is a breach of the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, and we've actually, we're in settlement discussions with the city, uh, city's attorneys, and those discussions um, have been positive. Uh, and I think that uh, together we will come out with, um, uh, with improved policies that um, change the way that the city administration focuses on people living outdoors. So I'm encouraged by that. On a national level, the decision that the Supreme Court could make to either uphold or, or not uphold the rights of people living outdoors can have staggering effects across the country. It could, on one hand, if the decision um, upholds people's basic rights, it will give it will it will mean that cities have to take a different tactic when working with people, one of uh, of altruism, one of empathy, one of helping people versus pushing people away. If the court rules the other way, um, it will be detrimental. It will cause great harm. 
we will likely we would likely see an increase in hate crimes against people outdoors across the country, more people locked up, uh, and more people uh, unable to access housing. Um, this is certainly the biggest decision on a judicial level regarding homelessness in the last four decades. Dr. Scale, we don't have a whole lot of time left, maybe 30 seconds even, but is this something that your patients worry about, whether what they're doing if they have to sleep under a bridge will, will lead to criminal charges? Oh, absolutely. And we see it all the time. We still have people that have no money. That's why they're outside. And they get a, a fine for being on a park bench. And then, of course, they can't pay that. And that leads to other problems. And that's hanging over their head. So um, it's all very sobering. So I'm inspired by this conversation, though. Um, very important issues we're discussing today. What can we do as next steps? I, I, you know, I do my little part, but I want to be a greater advocate. And you know, Kevin and Councilmember Owens and Josh, like, how can we help or the average person help move things forward? I've been talking with Strategies to End Homelessness President and CEO Kevin Finn, Cincinnati City Councilmember Mika Owens, Greater Cincinnati Homeless Coalition Executive Director Josh Spring, and Greater Cincinnati Behavioral Health Services Chief Medical Officer Dr. Tracy Scale. Thank you all so much for your time today. You've been listening to Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May.